The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration will collect feedback on its electronic rulemaking process. GSA took over the process from the Environmental Protection Agency in October. Next Gov reports GSA will take comments on the process in writing and host public meetings early in the new year. The first update of GSA's consolidated schedule will include a ban on buying technology from Chinese companies Huawei and ZTE. Agencies will have until the middle of August to comply with the order. FedScoop reports the Federal Acquisition Service will release the update January 15th. The 14th Air Force is now officially Space Operations Command. The Air Force says the command will support the new Space Force. Major General John Shaw will continue as commander of the unit. The Office of Personnel Management wants comments on a plan to change the way former federal employees can come back into government. For a long time, human capital professionals have wanted to bring employees back at higher grades than when those employees left government. Bill Valdez is president of the Senior Executives Association. Bill, thanks very much for coming on the program. Happy well, New Year. Thank you for having me here. What's the problem here that OPM is trying to solve, Bill? It's a, it's a two-part problem. Uh, the first is that the federal government has seen an exodus of young talent uh, recently. Uh, by some estimates, less than 6% of the federal, current federal workforce is under the age of 30. And I know when I was in government, uh, we had a hard time retaining uh, young workers, highly skilled young workers, because they could get jobs in the private sector. And so we'd train them up and they would leave. And then we hoped to get them back, but it was very difficult to do that because of the way OPM had structured the return rights of former federal employees. Mm -hmm. The second problem is that they are trying to resolve the situation where there are certain job categories like cyber, like highly scientific engineering fields, where uh, people might be in government, they go back, they leave government, go to uh, grad school, they or they go to work for a, a, a firm that or academic institution, and they want to come back, but they have to come back at the same level that they were. Mm -hmm. And so this is an attempt to solve that problem. Is there anybody who doesn't think this is a good idea, Bill? Because it strikes me that if you leave as an 11, mm -hmm. and you go out and gain maybe a master's mm -hmm. degree or some other kind mm -hmm. of advanced degree, or you gain two or three years of experience at a high-level information technology firm or something like that, mm -hmm. and you come back, there's a 0% chance you're going to want to come back as an 11. You've gained <laughs> a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. You've probably gained a lot of salary power, buying power, mm -hmm. in the private sector, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, and you know, the reality is, is that, uh, as you stated, these are high-demand people, mm -hmm. and you know, I mean, I had a situation where I tried to hire a, an attorney in government, and her previous position when she was, before she became an attorney, was as, a, as you said, a GS-11. Mm -hmm. I had to hire her as a GS-11. Now, she had a high public service ethic and was willing to take that cut, but that's a hard choice for people to make. And, and in answer to your question, 
I can't imagine who would be opposed to this. The uh, GovExec story about this says, in order to qualify for being rehired outside the competitive process, a former Fed must fulfill two, uh, two criteria. Must acquit their previous agency job at least one year prior to rehiring, so that mm. somebody can't leave for a month and come mm. back later. And they must have been rated at least fully successful in their final performance review in their old position. That seems mm. fairly reasonable, is it? It seems very reasonable, and what I would say also is, is that this is just the first step in the steps that we need to take to reform the hiring process in the federal government. Um, you know, the reality is, is that the, the next generation of workers are going to come in and out of government on a regular basis. And if we put artificial barriers in the place, in, in place of, the, of those workers, then we're not going to retain them. We're not going to get them back when we need them. And so my, my prediction, personally, is that the future workforce is going to be composed of about 50% of what we call tenured workers, uh, those workers who you know, have to really be in the government for 20, 30 years and know the business processes and the systems and that sort of thing. That's a good thing, mm -hmm. right? Yes. The other percent is going to be subject matter experts who come in and out of government on a regular basis. Currently, the system doesn't allow that kind of mobility to take place. This new rule is the first step in doing that, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. When you mentioned a moment ago that you think this is the first step toward that kind of broader reform, mm -hmm. I was reminded of the last time you were in the program, and we talked about those two schools of thought. There's the one school of thought that we should wait until we can do all of the things that we need to do, and there's this other mm -hmm. school of thought that we should hammer away on the things where there's agreement and take these mm -hmm. little incremental steps where possible. I asked you what school of thought you belong to, and you said the incremental steps, so I imagine you're pretty pleased to see that so shortly, <laughs> such a short period of time after you said this is what you'd like to see, you see it now. Well, OPM and their wisdom must have listened <laughs> to me, right? Of course, yeah. I'm sure that happens. But uh, I think in terms of what we would like to see is both happening, right? Uh, take the incremental steps when you can do them, but then we're coming up to an election year and there will be a new Congress and whether this administration, you know, wins or, you know, the Democrats win, there's a new fresh feeling in Washington at the start of a second term of a president or the start of the first term of a president that allows you to do more than just the incremental changes. And I think that's one of the things we're <laughs> focused on is what are those big level things that we could do that have bipartisan support that would enable us to really prepare for the workforce of the future. We have a little bit less than a minute left, Bill. If this is a good first step, what do you think would be a good second step? What's another s small bite that OPM or OMB could take in this in this work? I think really the flexible hiring authorities uh, need to be looked at and standardized across government. Currently there are about 105 different white collar pay systems in the federal government. Most of them are agency specific. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Congress passed those because agencies would say, hey, we need this special authority here, help us hire, you know, these kind of people. Well, that doesn't help when you're trying to do, you know, system level hiring. And so I think Congress and everybody else needs to take a look at, you know, what are those flexible hiring authorities that span government? Bill, thanks as always. It's great to see you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, some new do's and don'ts for contractors in the new National Defense Authorization Bill. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to get them right 
and keep yourself out of trouble. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The 2020 National Defense Authorization Act includes some policy changes for the department. It also has some new do's and don'ts for the contractors that serve or want to serve the Pentagon. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland at Night. Eric, thanks very much for coming on as always. Sure. What of all of these provisions that affect contractors in the new NDAA stood out to you? I think there's there's one in particular in the Section 800s, which is all where all the kind of the policy uh, uh, parts of the NDAA go for contractors was really interesting where the, the they really want the government to look at how we're buying things and and really kind of digest are we buying things in a correct way it's really kind of off of the section 809 panel which which recommended a lot of reforms um, I think the, the Congress is still searching for something in order how to buy things more effectively in a very secure manner littered throughout this NDAA are our concerns about the secureness of our technology not letting our plans of our of our or missiles and things like that getting into the wrong hands. And that's just an ongoing theme with CMMC, which we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the overall theme of this NDAA. You sent me a great little cheat sheet that includes all kinds of things that uh, that's jumped out at you. You mentioned that one. Another one that has that is addressed in this year's NDAA that has been on people's minds for a long time, especially the contracting community, is IP. Right. Who owns what IP and when seems to be the main question that people have been asking for a long time, both inside the building and, and in the vendor community. What do we know about how the Pentagon's thinking about IP based on what's in the NDAA and this year? I, I really see the Pentagon taking a more practical approach. We only want the IP we absolutely need to perform the mission. And that's really important because contractors, they're trying to get in non-traditional contractors into the fold, and the only way they're going to really do that is if they allow contractors to keep the IP that they develop without having to worry that somebody's going to swoop in, a competitor is going to swoop in and be able to get access to their IP. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of that going on within the NDA and just in general as, as a matter of course uh, that DOD is looking at. The response from other vendors is, well, if I don't know how to build that, then I can't try to build something that will work with it or that could potentially compete against it or whatever any sense of whether that's something that the Pentagon's trying to address or, or if they are, how so? I mean, I think they're definitely trying to address that. I think modulating a lot of what they're doing, so things are in separate boxes, is mm -hmm. a way that they're trying to address that. And you see some of that in this NDAA. And I think overall, um, they're just, I think their biggest concern, though, is just bringing those non-traditional contractors. Uh, another issue that showed up in this year's bill that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the Defense Department exclusively, we talked about it a little bit before we went on the air, and that is a cost estimate for models of the new e-commerce portal that GSA is developing. What's in there about that? Uh, about these e-commerce portals, Eric? So sure, the original bill had three different models that contractors, that they that GSA may want to adopt for contractors. You have the e-commerce model, which is one vendor selling its products on a website, the, the e-marketplace, which is kind of Amazon, yeah. and then the e-procurement model, which is you're selling software as a service, essentially. And the um, GSA is really focused on this e-marketplace where you have a lot of folks, kind of the Amazon model, and everyone thinks that Amazon is lined up to potentially get that work. Um, but I think the folks in Congress are concerned that they're diving into this maybe without 
doing enough research and they want to know the cost estimate for, for these different models. I'm not saying that that e-marketplace model is the wrong way to go mm -hmm. at all. It may be may very well be the right way, but I think Congress is act, trying to act as a check to make sure that that's the right thing to do. GSA is working on multiple portals and the question that we've talked about before that I still haven't been able to understand is how is the person who's actually buying something, who's sitting in front of the terminal and she decides, I need whatever the supply is, how do, how do we know which portal is the place where she's going to be able to find the best deal, which is the whole point of all of this, to be able to buy this stuff more like a commodity like you or I right. would, would buy a book or something else that we want to buy off the Internet? The only way that that can happen is if that person has situational awareness of these different portals. Like mm -hmm. I know that there are four portals out there, so I'm going to check all four. Unless somebody, as we've talked before, I think on air, um, somebody comes up with a model where there's one kind of gathering website that can refer uh, somebody like her to the different models, to the different portals, and to try to figure out which one has the best price. Do you worry, as somebody who follows the vendor community, that that forces kind of a race to the bottom where price becomes really the only differentiator and the government winds up, in, in cases where something's a commodity, I guess that's not a bad idea, is it? Right. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any such thing as a true commodity. Everything has slight differentiation. I mean, if you look at post-it notes, some are better than others, right? Yeah. yeah. Even though they're quote-unquote a commodity. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, we've kind of vanquished LPTA a little bit where we've put it off to the side where it should be and just used in very particular circumstances where it's really warranted. And I'm a little bit worried, to your point, that we're going to get back to kind of an LPTA world when it shouldn't necessarily be one for products that may offer some innovation. Less than a minute left. Um, Section 873, thanks to your terrific cheat sheet, accelerated <laughs> payments to small businesses. I'm sure they're very excited to hear about the possibility they could get their money sooner. Yeah, 15 days um, after a, a, an invoice is presented that's, that's lawful and in line with what the government is looking for. Um, and that it applies also to subcontractors, to larger primes. Um, so it's a great great day to be a small business when that can happen because they often have a money crunch. They invest a lot of money up front to help the government with its mission, get people on board or, or build a product or something like that. And oftentimes they're waiting months to kind of get paid for that effort and it's very difficult for them. I mean, there are banks out there that are willing to help float cash for them, but that's still a cost to that. So having a faster accelerated payment can attract more small businesses to DOD. Eric Crucius, thanks as always, my friend. Thank you. Coming up, 2020 should be a big year for cloud at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's next for the two biggest cloud deals at the Pentagon? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Industry still has a long list of questions about the two big cloud contracts the Defense Department awarded in 2019. The JEDI contract sucked up all the attention, but the DOS contract could be almost as valuable as that one, and the branches want to get to work putting applications into those clouds or letting vendors do it for them. Carton Cordell is staff reporter at the Washington Business Journal. Billy Mitchell is editor-in-chief at FedScoop. Gentlemen, thanks very much for coming on, as always. Carton, I'll start with you. DOS is the one I'm more interested in because we've talked about JEDI until we're blue in the 
the face. Sure. Where is Dios now, and where does it appear to be headed in your view? Well, we don't know a lot because very much like the original procurement, Dios is in the e-buy system right now. We do know that the RFQ was issued last month and that there was a December 19th deadline. So given all the work that's been put into this contract, you would figure that there would be a pretty quick award coming sometime early in the year. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of details out released through the public, and GSA hasn't really said a whole lot about it. What does that tell you, Billy, about where DO stands now and where it could be headed, say, just in the first quarter of 2020? Yeah, I agree with Carton. I think it's going to be a quick award, given that they've already awarded it, and it was pretty quick compared to its counterpart, Jedi. Mm -hmm. um, I think, <clears throat> you know, there's a good shot that it, it's, it's another jump ball between Perspecta and G GDIT, but um, regardless, this is for Microsoft services, so that's Microsoft's going to be the big winner, and um, you can't mention that without saying my, Microsoft also won Jedi, right. um, which is also under protest. That could change, um, but I, I don't know how likely that is. But So it's, it's going to be a big year for Microsoft. Does it, do, do either of you expect anything to come out of the protest that has to do with Dios, or is that maybe the fact that they're kind of this is still in process, maybe that's an indicator. I don't, what, what do you see, either of you, as far as how the, the protest affects the way Dios is going to move forward? Well, in, in comparing again to Jedi, Jedi had so much drama in it, that mm -hmm. chapter after chapter after chapter of things that were controversial. This didn't seem to be the case with Dios. The initial chatter when the corrective action came out was this was a misunderstanding, this was just something that you know came up sort of incidentally and GSA wants to correct the action. They want to fix their mistakes. So it doesn't seem like that there's going to be anything that's really so much dramatic there. It's really just dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Do you think it matters, Billy, that DOS is more for back office type functions and that JEDI is more for the tip of the spear function in the way that the, well, the fact that the Perspective wanted to protest it, what they wrote in their protest, all that kind of thing, compared to the way that Amazon is protesting Jedi. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the whole narrative about both of these contracts shows out in those different uh, comparisons, back office stuff. It, 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 when you're talking about cloud in the military, um, you're, you're thinking of life and death. and. Um, Back office stuff just doesn't have that same ring to it, but when it comes to something like Jedi, and it's this, I mean, they're both single awards, so both can arguably be, um, have, have the same contention around them, but um, with Jedi, there's just so much more of this, like, we need to keep our, our men and women in uniform safe, where back office, it's, you know, I, I want to chat somebody yep. at a base across the states. Um, the, one of the big reasons that the department wants to move to the cloud and wants to expand the cloud portfolio that it exists is because all the branches are looking at IT as a service components at least. You've both written about that. Billy, what do you see as the maybe the first places that the branches will consider that possibility. Yeah, so Air Force is really kind of leading the way on this. Um, all of them are doing their own instantiations. Navy's done NGEN for a while, and they're doing the recompete, which it's it's not IT as a service in, in its name, but it, it really is the same exact thing. Um, so Air Force, I think, is kind of leading the way with the smaller pilots. Um, Army's kind of following along. Uh, Air Force has done a couple pilots, and I think they'll make some big awards over the next year. Army, just back in October, though, made awards to Verizon, AT, 
AT&T and Microsoft um, for a couple of bases. I think there was nine or ten. Um, so they, they're starting to get their feet wet. But I think it's you know all of these CIOs under those different branches are working together and kind of taking each other's lead so that when there are things like Jedi and Dios in place, that they have the infrastructure um, to kind of work with those uh, different providers that are coming in and kind of doing the work for them. And Carton, I think the fact that those CIOs are all working together in each of the branches maybe is the big unreported story. Maybe we'll see more about that in 2020 because historically the branches have not been really good when it comes to IT at sharing information amongst each, with each other about what they're doing and where they're making progress and where they're having trouble. If that happens in this area of IT as a service, that could potentially be a breakthrough for other types of IT collaboration, couldn't well, it? Absolutely, and as Billy said, there's been a lot of collaboration at the pilot stage between the services there. The question then becomes is that will there be buy-in once JEDI goes through eventually? how that all coordinates, and just because of the, the security ramifications, the data coordination, there's a lot of facets to a cloud migration and cloud services that really have to be coordinated in general, so collaboration makes a strong point for the services to move that through quickly. All right, we have to talk about JEDI. I'm doing it against my better judgment. Billy, last week you wrote, Oracle's taken his protest DOD's handling of the JEDI acquisition all the way to a federal appeals court after falling short with GAO and the Court of Federal Claims. What does that say to you, first of all, about how serious they are, given that they're nowhere on the landscape as a potential winner of this, and what does it say to you about what might happen with the Amazon protest? Yeah, I, I, it's really hard to say because I, I, I expected Oracle's protests to kind of dwindle out a little bit now that AWS is, by all accounts, protesting its own or off the table. It, that seemed to be Oracle's intention the whole time to kind of uh, stumble AWS mm -hmm. uh, from the competition. Um, but in checking, they're still filing um, their their protest complaints. Um, the Justice Department just issued its its rebuttal in the complaints uh, last week. So, by all accounts, they're still you know moving forward in, in the appeals process. Um, so they're very serious about it. I, um, I'm not sure that anything is going to come out of it at this point because there's there's th this other much larger protest that's going to kind of take precedent. Uh, about 20 seconds left. What are you watching on Jedi as it moves forward, Card? The administrative record will be coming out soon. Amazon, if they're going to make it, the political case that they're trying to make, they have to show that the DOD did not make decisions that made sense in the political is the smoking gun. Carton and Billy, thanks both very much. As always, Happy New Year. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. 
to be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets, your inventory, and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education, to correct those findings. Or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.